Hi everyone and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. I started this podcast for a very simple reason. You can find podcasts on pretty much any topic, but I wasn't aware of any that were focused on public service leaders. So rather than wait for somebody else to do it, I decided to give it a try. I wanted to give public service leaders a platform to tell their stories, to talk about the reforms and innovations they put in place, and to share lessons in leadership. I think this will be particularly interesting for current and future public service leaders, but a lot of the lessons are more broadly applicable. So I hope you enjoy it, and please remember to register on the website to never miss a future episode. This week's episode is with John O'Brien. John is the Chief Executive of London Councils. Now, John explains it a lot better than I will, but London Councils is essentially an umbrella organisation for the London boroughs. From this experience, John has a huge understanding of how London works. And by that, I mean how the mayor interacts with the different councils, interacts with the GLA and interacts with central government. In John's time as Chief Executive of London Councils, he's worked with both Boris Johnson and Sadiq Khan, and he provides some very interesting reflections on the different styles and ways of working of those two administrations. We talk about how COVID has impacted London and the different boroughs in London, and also about the government's levelling up agenda and what sort of impact that could have in London and John gives some reflections on reducing inequalities and some ideas about that. And finally, we talk about the importance of peer-to-peer support in, in any walk of life, really, and the importance for creating time to share experiences, to talk to others who are maybe going through the same challenges as you are, and creating time for self-reflection as well. So let's hear from John. John, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. We've got lots to talk about and I'm tempted to get immediately into it. But for the benefit of our listeners, could you just briefly introduce yourself? Thanks, Andrew. And um, I should say at the outset, I've had the chance to listen to a few of the podcasts in this series and I've very much enjoyed them. So I'm really, really pleased that you've asked me to contribute and uh, and delighted to join you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, So I'm John O'Brien. I'm Chief Executive of London Councils. It's the representative body for the 32 London boroughs and the City of London Corporation. Um, We do a variety of things on behalf of those member councils. We run some direct services for Londoners, such as Freedom Pass, the concessionary fares scheme for older and disabled Londoners. Um, We administer a Pan-London grant scheme for voluntary organisations. But I guess the thing that is of the highest salience to most people is we act as a sort of focal point for policy coordination and influencing and lobbying and brokering of wider relationships uh, of the boroughs in part within London, you know, with the mayor and the GLA, but also other London public service partners, but in part also nationally with Whitehall and Westminster and with ministers and civil service and parliamentarians. Prior to that, I did a variety of things. I worked for about six years at the start of my career directly in local government. Uh, I spent about 11 years with KPMG in government consulting, um, primarily local government, but a little bit overseas. Um, I spent four years at the newly founded Improvement and Development Agency for local government, helping pioneer approaches to peer-based self-improvement within the sector. 
And after that, and the last job before this one, uh, I spent four years in central government. So I was the uh, I was in the former office of the deputy prime minister and then CLG as uh, uh, director of local government performance and practice, which had a particular focus on uh, the improvement agenda, but also the engagement and intervention regime that surrounded uh, councils with you know very significant performance challenges. Excellent. Um, you, you mentioned a number of London institutions there, the mayor, individual London boroughs and, and your organisation, London councils. How do they all work together? So at one level, there's you know clearly a reasonably uh, straightforward statutory base to the respective responsibilities of, on the one hand, the mayor and the GLA, which is you know, in particular focused on some big pan-London strategies, and then on the other, the powers, the functions and the responsibilities of individual boroughs, which, you know, people would recognise as being broadly commensurate with unitary authorities uh, across the country. Yeah. Um, I guess we may come on a bit to London's devolution story over the past few decades. But clearly, with that sort of division of responsibilities, it can't properly reflect the, the sort of joint and collaborative challenge of trying to deliver for London as a whole uh, and the, you know, the individual communities that make it up. So, you know, whether it's combating climate change or boosting housing supply or tackling serious youth violence, you know, or helping equip Londoners to get into decent jobs um, or countless other vital tasks, it's pretty hard to do that without effectively trying to combine the efforts of the boroughs and the mayor and other London-wide services. And I suppose that's where London councils comes in because whilst a lot of that happens directly and bilaterally, you know, at local level, boroughs do also themselves come together in sort of sub-regional combinations where that's appropriate. But London councils has a sort of key role in brokering that overall framework in which some of that collaboration takes place. So, you know, we play quite an important part in shaping the devolution of the work and health programme to economic sub-regions in London. We negotiated on behalf of the boroughs the two London health devolution deals in 2015 and 17. Um, We, you know, we did a lot of work with Treasury and government on sort of the devolution MOU for London along with the mayor. And as part of that, establishing, you know, the, the former London business rates retention pool. So a lot of the sort of action happens locally, rightly, you know, or a sub regional level. But trying to help establish the sort of London frameworks is often something that London Council yeah. plays a, a key part in brokering along with others. And the, the GLA, the London Assembly, what role does that play? So the um, the mayor, in a sense, is the executive function of the sort of pan-London piece of governance. Um, you know, I'd say particularly has responsibility for things like, you know, the London plan, the housing strategy, economic strategy, health inequalities. In doing that, there's a sort of um, the assembly has in part a sort of legislative function. Um, it needs to approve those strategies, you know, and there are various rules about what sort of proportion of its members need to uh, to vote in order to approve those things. But critically, it's also the challenge and scrutiny function to the mayor. Right. So it's holding the mayor to account. That's typically what you see on those clips uh, of of when the Assembly is holding hearings into a variety of things. It has an ability to roam quite widely across London and, you know, matters relating to London life and London public service. 
but its real teeth, I think, uh, is in terms of the way it can hold the mayor to account. And then in your time at London Councils, I imagine you've worked with several different mayors and different mayoral administrations. How would you, I suppose for want of a better way of putting it, compare and contrast their styles or ways of working? So um, my first year in the job was Kevin, Ken Livingston's last year as mayor. So I'm probably sort of not you know, that well sort of qualified to talk about that particular mayorality. But my time has encompassed the entire periods of, of Boris Johnson as mayor. And so, you know, the, the period so far of Sadiq Khan. I mean, obviously, they are different people. And they're different types of politician. Um, that's that's hardly breaking news. Uh, and, 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 and some of that's reflected in the way they do the job, as most observers can see. The nature of the job, I think, is is shaped by the circumstances of the time. So for Boris, there was the this sort of the aftermath of the financial crash, you know, sort of 2008-9, uh, which was a threat at the time to what the wider trajectory of London uh, had become. And of course, there was the Olympics, the continuing need to sort of attract investment to London and to try and support and sustain the sort of growth that um, that had become important to London and the rest of the country. And I suppose it's just interesting to compare that, say, with Sadiq, who he'd only been mayor for six weeks when the Brexit referendum happened. Um, And psychologically, if nothing else, uh, that's quite important for a city like London when you think of its characteristics. Within a year, we'd had a wave of, you know, pretty sort of dreadful terror attacks and, of course, the tragedy of the Grenfell fire. Um, And in the last year, you know, Covid is a sort of profound and existential challenge, really, you know, to, to the nature of London or what it's become, you know, in, in, in recent times. So I think the circumstances shape a bit, you know, the differences. The other thing that's worth saying, though, I think, is that um, when you do a job like mine, you're also struck, perhaps a bit more boringly, by some of the sort of essential continuities, actually, you know, between administrations. So in the Boris Johnson era, we had the London Finance Commission. Uh, a belief that greater fiscal devolution would be in the interest not just of London, but of the other parts of the country as well, in particular the sort of great cities around the country. Sadiq Khan reconvened that when he became mayor. He updated it, but it didn't change the sort of fundamental conclusions. Um, All of the mayors, in my experience, have wanted greater control over London's affairs, greater devolution, regardless of who they are. Yeah. And I think it's probably true of any mayor, you know, in this country, city, city region, it's true of mayors in the US, I think, that you have to, it's sort of in the brand, really, that you have to convince people that whilst you are of a political party yourself and you have your own convictions, um, you recognise that your primary responsibility is to the place and that people have to see you yeah. in that way. And you have to have a, quite a visible level, it seems to me, of sort of healthy independence you know, I think it's sort of partly baked into the electoral system for the jobs. And I think I think both the mayors I've had experience of have reflected that. No, I think it's to your, your huge credit that you've survived and thrived through those two probably very different administrations. And I imagine that is to do with your loyalty and focus being on London and the place rather than the politics. Well, I think that, I mean, you know, it should be clear, obviously, I'm not working directly for those mayors. I'm sort of, you know, the London Council is a partner organisation to the mayor and the GLA, but we work... But you, we work, you have to work very closely with have them. have to work very closely with them, yes, absolutely. And, and quite a lot of those 
of that devolution agenda and also, you know, the, the Finance Commission work, you know, has been very closely in, in lockstep. We're, a, you know, we are a cross-party organisation and therefore, you know, it's really important that we hold all of our member authorities, regardless of sort of political persuasion, together yeah. in the work we do. That can be, you know, that can be uh, difficult at times. It can be slow. It can be frustrating. But I think when you've got the weight of the sector behind you working with other London partners, it can be, it can yeah. be really powerful. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about devolution in London now. Um, so substantial powers are devolved to London through the various institutions and you yourself have been involved in the, I suppose, e- evolution mm. of that over the last, the last couple of decades, really, in various guises. How does London devolution compare to the devolution in other parts of the country? Because I think a lot of people see a very clear devolution story in the likes of Manchester and London. They, a lot of people probably just see it as the capital. And, you know, they, they probably don't really understand that that story and what devolution in London really means. Yes, I, I think it, it probably depends a bit, doesn't it, on where you start the story, really. So, um, you know, along with what um, happened in Scotland and Wales in the late 90s, the, the sort of London settlement of 2000, which is when we're, when the mayor was created and the and the GLA and the the sort of first devolution settlement it was you know i think it was constitutionally quite significant you know and a, and a, a real marker of that of that era and i think probably for at least 10 years slightly longer it was bigger and more significant than anything that had been rolled out anywhere else i suppose an interesting sort of symbol of it in a sense is um it, it, it would you know would be tfl you know because you've got yeah. here sort of jewel in the devolution crown, you know, a regional transport authority with the sort of reach and autonomy and financial independence that was very much sort of envied by other parts of the country, you know, yeah. and, uh, and actually, you know, why, why can we not have the equivalent body? I mean, well, this is still something, this is still something that Andy Burnham talks about a lot, that he was on the same sort of part. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think, and, and is right to, I'm sure, to call for it. I should say, of course, the last 12 months has sort of had a, had an impact, you know, and the very thing that made TfL independent in terms of its reliance upon the fare box to the degree that it did, you know, is clearly now a problem in terms of what's happened with COVID. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's got the, the sort of the, the clarity of purpose and the sort of long term plan to to deal with that but it's been a very challenging period obviously in london we then had further powers you know in 2007 2011 and it's probably sort of worth saying it, it coincided you know with a period of really sort of significant growth for london you know we had a million new londoners between 2010 and 2020 360,000 yeah. new households something like 35 to 40 billion pound net contribution to the exchequer so uh, that doesn't mean to say that we didn't have very stubborn problems about poverty and worklessness and homelessness and housing affordability more generally. But I think, you know, that first period, London clearly was ahead of the pack. And things like the Finance Commission, we had a lot of support from places like Manchester and Birmingham because they themselves, I think, could see the the advantages and the benefits of, of greater fiscal devolution. Yeah. Um, I think what's happened you know, probably then from the era where uh, sort of George Osborne began to pioneer the Northern Powerhouse and, you know, devolution to Greater Manchester, uh, Greater Manchester is that, you, you know, clearly the, 
the profile of that part of the devolution settlement uh, in other parts of the country has gone up. And to some degree, there's been a sort of a, a sort of wider narrative. Well, London, London had its devolution, didn't it? You know, everyone else is, is coming up at that same place. It didn't mean, actually, that we were quiet on this. Um, we did do the sort of work and health program, a bit like Greater Manchester did. We did do some health devolution deals in that era uh, as well. Um, but, of course, we've seen the creation of mayoral combined authorities in you know other parts of urban England. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, there are parts of um, the London settlements which, you know, probably needs a further reflection now in the context of what's happened elsewhere. So, you know, we've yeah. we've got rather less formal joint governance kit than sort of mayoral combined authorities. We've found perfectly good sort of ways of of working around that, you know, in a sort of soft way about how we've tried to combine authority. But clearly that's been done in a more modern and, um, you know, yeah. in a fresh way elsewhere. So there's some things, I think, for us to learn from what's what's happened yeah. elsewhere. Yeah, you mentioned poverty in, in London there, and I want to come back later to talk about levelling up and what that means in London. But this would be a very strange interview for this time if I didn't ask you about COVID-19 and how that has had an impact in London, like many parts of the country. So can you can you comment on that impact and also on London's response to COVID-19? Yeah, sure. And I know that you've talked to others, you know, who are very close to the front line and uh, and would have talked to you about response efforts and um you know have been have been closer to that directly uh than I would but looking across the boroughs you know there's been a huge effort to rapidly design and get new services up and running supporting communities to support each other um for many I think that's an accelerant to what they were doing already but I do think this is added a further impetus that will be an enduring legacy of this. There's clearly support to businesses, you know, more than £2 billion worth of grants out, you know, to businesses in London since last summer. Councils have administered sort of 12 new grants, you know, sometimes within days of each other, because we've obviously, as we moved through the tier system as it existed at one point, that helped helped with all of that. I think the work on community testing both has been important, but I, I suppose the important important point here is I think it will become ever more critical because rapid testing to stay on top of outbreaks as we come to a slightly more normal state I think is going to be vital what you do to support self-isolation what you do to support vaccination take-up are all going to be really really important and I think that takes us to a bit of the London story that is important which is about inequalities really it has shone a very sort of harsh light, I think, on, on inequalities. And if you look at patterns of infection rates, if you look at multi-generational households and where they're concentrated, if you look at employment patterns and the sort of relative inability of some people to be able to work from home, um, those who are most economically disincentivized to self-isolate, where the greatest vaccine hesitancy exists, it's really important, I think, that as a city we make sure that we don't leave COVID to be a sort of sort of residually big thing in certain communities and certain places. Yeah. And and the task of addressing that is going to be a hyper local one. I mean, we're going to have to come together and collaborate on it, and all the partners are going to play a part. But it is going to be hyper local, 
And I think councils, you know, have been key, but they're going to be even more key in that phase. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure your organisation and your member councils are going to be very worried about recovery. And as you say, it being a balanced recovery. But any time I've ventured back into the office over lockdown, it's been very empty, very quiet, a lot of shops closed up. So thinking about recovery now, what are the priorities in London and what practical steps are being taken to deliver on those priorities? Well, you, you know, Andrew, you're you're definitely right about, you know, what it can feel like when you're in central London. And there's a sort of, I suppose, that contrast between what people are used to about the centre of town and, and how it's been. And, you know, certainly if you look at Asking rents, I think they've fallen by twice as much in inner London and central London than they have elsewhere. Um, that sort of nexus of hospitality, retail, tourism, you know, it's a, it's sort of really important. So there's, there's a, there's been a lot of focus with the business community about how we, how we drive, you know, safely, but how we will drive a, a boost of footfall as we, as we emerge into the, um, you know, the reopening phase from lockdown and, yeah. and and how we support that through, you know, the work we do as councils um, with businesses is, is really important. But more broadly, thinking about recovery, I suppose we've worked with uh, City Hall and the chair of London councils and the mayor are co-chairing the London Recovery Board. We've got a broad range of partners from business, the voluntary sector, uh, and from other parts of public service. I suppose the grand challenge is, you know, how do we restore confidence in the city, minimise the impact on communities and build back better both the economy and society? And so that board has set itself that challenge, but it's got about nine missions spread across both an economic strand, things like Green New Deal, reviving high streets, helping Londoners into work, digital access, Mm. also a sort of strong theme on uh, uh, social recovery, you know, things like a new deal for young people who've been so hard hit, mental health, which there's a sort of huge trail, I think, of mental health issues in all of this, particularly among young people, uh, and how, how we can help rebuild strong communities. So that work has sort of, is being filtered through there, that's the challenge, Um, It's relatively early days. There's a lot of work to try and talk directly to Londoners, which I think is important in all of this, that we've got that sort of connection. And And how would that work? How how would talking directly to Londoners work? Well, the the, the City Hall have got uh, a capacity, um, you you know, a a sort of uh, a fairly well-developed capacity for not just for polling, but for running, um, you know, more deliberative discussions with groups of Londoners and such things. And so, again, I think it's been sort of to the credit of this program that that people have taken the time and the trouble to sort of begin that process. It's a bit early yet to say what the clear conclusions are. I suppose the other end of the spectrum on all this is that one thing this has done is I think it's made us focus on some things that we haven't always done as well as we might. So London's got some fantastic anchor institutions. You think about higher education in London, you think about the health service in London. I don't think we collectively have leveraged those assets systematically uh, that well in the past, but we're putting a real focus on it and that anchor institutions point and sort of the Team London sense, I think, you know, does feel quite strong in terms of trying to harness that going forward. 
Who's taking the lead on all of this in, in, in London? I imagine this is not a straightforward answer, but, you know, <laughs> London councils as an organisation, individual boroughs, the mayor's office, how is that all working together? Yes, this could be a, a sort of multi-part podcast if I ask okay. too much. Too let's, detail. Let, yeah. <laughs> I'll, let, give you, I'll give you the thumbnail in version. Nutshell, in, in the nutshell. thumbnail version is the board, as I say, the board is sort of co-chaired by the, the mayor and the chair of London Councils. We've yeah. also got government government involvement in that because clearly government's part in this is very important and we you know we work closely with um, with ministers in particular uh, the minister for London. Um, so um, within those missions though there are a number of lead people from business voluntary sector other bits of public service the anchor institutions work is being led by the health service for example which is really good and interesting. Um, we've got some of our leading elected members who are leading the work on both the economic and the social sides. Um, but, you know, typically in, each, in, each, in all of those areas, there's there's a group of people who are trying to drive that forward. We've managed to engage, you know, some help, from people like Bloomberg and others, you know, as we think through some of those issues. So it's a it's a it's a genuinely, I think, collaborative effort, um, but with a team that has been sort of put together jointly by ourselves and the, the GLA to actually provide a focal point for that work. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, I really want to talk to you about levelling up and the levelling up agenda and how that plays in into London. So um, last week in the budget, alongside that, there was some more information published on the levelling up fund, which is essentially the government's flagship fund for making uh, investments into areas of the UK, all across the UK. The slightly surprising thing was I think people were expecting it to be very focused on the Midlands and the North, and it still was. But, uh, for instance, places like Kent, which was broken down into districts, six out of the 12 districts in Kent were categorised in Category 1, which is supposedly areas most in need. So that was a bit of a surprise in some some areas on the south coast. What wasn't, unfortunately, a surprise to me was that only two areas in London, Barking and Dagenham and Newham, were on the Category 1 list. Against the backdrop of that, what does levelling up now mean for London? So I suppose I've got two sets of thoughts, really. Um, one one is about the the narrative that sometimes surrounds this whole uh, subject, um, you know, particularly in respect of London uh, and the way that's presented. And then I suppose something actually, a, perhaps a reflection about the approach itself and, you know, yeah. what that means in the context of, of devolution. As you say, we're going to have to, as far as the specifics are concerned, we're going to have to wait and see exactly what the indices look like and, you know, and what the balance of those different factors, including connectivity, uh, mean. Um, and I should say also that, you know, this, I really don't think this should be a sort of beggar thy neighbour, you know, a race to prove who's the most worthy of, of support. Um, you know, I, I would recognise there's some desperately neglected places, you know, across the country where it's entirely legitimate that there's going to be some focus and investment. Um, as far as London is concerned, I think the narrative is is a difficult one because it's not, you know, it's not that London has not benefited from investment of capital. Clearly it has, you know, very, you know, very demonstrably. But some of that benefit is also shared with others. There is some interdependence. And if you look at the perspective of or from the perspective of 33 town halls across London, the narrative about a place of sort of shining wealth is not 
you know, recognisable, and the narrative is not always that persuasive. Yeah. So, you know, look at the prominence of London boroughs towards the top end of the index of multiple deprivation. Look at the fact that five of the 25 most deprived boroughs in the country in London. I mentioned that sort of stubborn problem we've had anyway about things like worklessness. Unemployment's growing faster in London than anywhere else in the country, about 7%, you know, with the young hit particularly hard. There's also that factor about the sort of unique nature of the London housing market in all of its forms. Um, and the toll that that takes. So, you know, I think, you know, more than 25% of households living in relative poverty after housing costs have been taken into account, often in work poverty, perhaps reflects that sort of point about London being a sort of mixture of dynamism and some deprivation, you know, London exhibits. Um, so I think there's a need to be granular, um, uh, and not allow a narrative that's entirely suggesting that this is about regions. You know, inequalities within regions are often as stark uh, as they are between them, and inequalities between people in regions is very stark. This has been a debate that has been going on in government for for decades about how to address inequality, and government has tended to go down the route that you're suggesting where it doesn't pick out a region and say we're investing in this region, even in the bits which are uh, which are prosperous. You know, it, it has been more granular, and that's been a very deliberate policy decision of uh, successive governments. Um, and I think that there there was a, a feeling that this iteration of central government support through the Leveling Up Fund might take a different approach, but I think it, it still it still seems quite granular because even within counties it's broken down into districts and if you take Kent for instance some are classed as category one so Thanet and places like that whereas other areas like Seven Oaks are obviously category three so it it is granular in a way. I I mean I think I think the other point about it is we will see what is the relative benefit of an approach based on you know a variety of competitively bid for funding streams Mm. Um, and and indeed some of those you know individually probably sort of add up to a bit less than than you know some of the bigger place-based transformation programs of of previous years but I mean it it is a bit different from a from a world in which we thought that a more joined up strategic place-based view of recovery more based on devolution uh, would be the route through. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that circle gets squared in policy terms, yeah. particularly yeah. if there's a devolution white paper later in the year. So I, I, I yeah. think I think that's an interesting question just about the the nature of the approach, leaving aside the distributional arguments. So, John, you have experience of working in central government, local government, and also as the leader of what we could term a, a regional body. So I'm really keen to get your thoughts on how central and regional local government can best work together because we've seen it work well and not so well during the past year, I guess it is now. Mm. So, I mean, I think, um, I mean, the first thing I should say is that it's been a privilege actually to watch, you know, outstanding public servants absolutely committed to what we all care about and the work they've done over the last year. They've made a sort of fantastic contribution. And I should immediately say those people are both local and central. You know, um, uh, you know, I, I don't distinguish between them. There are some, some great people in Whitehall who 
you know, have been really focused relentlessly on this, you know, as well as people at the local level. I guess um, I guess the sort of pragmatic argument that local government has always made, you know, beyond the sort of the theory of devolved self-government is that we're best placed both to advance local priorities and local political will, you know, in terms of shaping places and serving communities and be the best means of convening and making sense of the sort of component parts of the local state in order that things that are really important for central government can get delivered most effectively as well. And I, and I, I think, you know, that's always been our practical argument. And I think it continues to be. I think what we've seen in the last year, actually, is if I, if I can develop this a bit, going back to the years when I worked in Whitehall, I mean, I spent quite a lot of my time working for ministers. who you know, I think who were sympathetic to that aspiration and they did, they did quite a lot to sort of, you know, reduce the scale and burden of inspection on local government, you know, literally thousands of best value performance indicators that got thinned out. So I think we made some important steps, but I think their view of local government was that the quality of it was variable uh, and that 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 narrative of place, which we think is so important, is one that, you know, Whitehall doesn't always in every case find as as important, you know, for, for some of the functions it's performing. Since then, Local governments had a lot of capacity hollowed out. And yet, counterintuitively, I think the respect in which it's held and the potential contribution it can make to sort of national goals as well as local ones has, has if anything, has, has, has risen. And I've actually got some optimism that I think there are parts of Whitehall that, that does understand better that potential to be conveners of the local state and to help yeah. deliver on national core priorities as well as local. I, I would completely agree with that. I, I, I know that there are big big chunks of central government that completely get that. And central government has, you know, particularly when within the teams that, you know, in my day job, we, we work with where there are some people who maybe have experience of working yeah. at a local level as well, that can be really helpful. I spend quite a lot of time talking to people who, you know, in central government who are quite keen to come and spend time in local government, you know, to have secondment opportunities, you know, and and the like, and who I think really now see that, you know, that experience is going to be an important part of their career path, whether whether they see themselves back in Whitehall in the end or not. You know, we've seen obviously some sort of high profile people coming out of Whitehall to do jobs, the local state. I mean, I think that that my optimism is not that, you know, that it always translates into policy. It doesn't mean to say that the first impulse isn't sometimes a bit centralist um, and doesn't recognise, you know, the potential of the of the local. I mean, I guess you could say the initial approach to, you know, test, track and and, and trace, you know, had had an element of that. And I think there's still, you know, places in Whitehall which are a bit more sceptical that, place is as important as we think it is in terms of knitting things together. But I do think there's a sort of better mutual understanding at working level. Uh, And also, I think, a a respect for outstanding local public service leaders right across the system, whether they be professional or political. So, you know, I'm not naive about this, but I'm certainly not without hope either. No, I think that's right. And from some of the other interviews that I've done for the podcast, speaking to those local leaders 
they would compare and contrast what people see on TV in terms of politicians maybe being at each other's throats. And they contrast that with their experience of working with the senior people in Whitehall, where it's away from the cameras, it's away from anyone else's attention, and they find actually it to be really productive and that everybody's pulling in the same direction. I often talk about having a really good bridge between central government and local government and the really good civil servants in central government completely get that. They are, I don't think I'm going too far to say, obsessed by how you get things done on the front line. Yes. And they get that all service delivery ultimately is local. You can construct as many frameworks and targets and, and KPIs centrally as you want, but if nothing happens uh, outside of Whitehall, then nothing's happening. So it's really, really good to uh, to get your views and thoughts on that, actually, very much appreciated. Um, at this point in the podcast, I, I always like to, to turn to leadership and culture questions. And, um, and I think something that would be really interesting to talk to you about would be uh, peer-to-peer engagement and learning. So I, I want to go back to your time in the Improvement and Development Agency. And I know that you had a focus on, on peer review and supporting peer-to-peer learning. So the Radical Reformers podcast is very much aimed at supporting peer-to-peer learning. Um, So I really get the importance of that. And it feels like uh, just over the past year or so, people will have been distracted from peer-to-peer engagement and learning whilst they deal with the crisis. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, that's, that's probably happened at a time when they might have needed it the most, So I was just wondering what your view on that was. Mm. Yes, I mean, I think, as you say, inevitably, lots of things have been hit by, you know, the circumstances the last year. Although, you know, I should say um, just yesterday I was talking to one of our political leaders who just finished doing a, um, you know, a virtual peer challenge of an an authority in another part of the country's uh, outbreak management uh, plan. It was like a really good example, just listening to her talk about both the 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 insight that she was able to gain from sort of, you know, looking at, at somewhere else, but also, you know, the value of the contribution that can be made from that. I, I was heartened by that. I mean, looking back when we started the IDEA all those years ago, I mean, I, I look back on it with quite a lot of pride, not least because, you know, we had some sort of great people. Uh, we were trying to sort of build something and they're, and they're people who've gone on to some really big jobs in, in, in public service. And, um, it's, you know, it was one of the joys, isn't it, of, you know, when you see people you've yeah. had some responsibility for go on and become stars that you always hope they would. Um, and I think the sort of peer review and challenge, you know, was, uh, you know, an important part of that era. And, of course, there's been some brilliant work done since to sort of build on that and to make it, um, make it much more um, extensive. And I think it also has helped sort of convince people that quite often the the decisive resource that people need around improvement actually comes from within the sector, however that gets branded, whether that is self-improvement or whether actually in the end it's some bit of formal government intervention. You know, actually, you do need people who've got the, the weight and the authenticity of what, what they've done in the sector to actually help others. I mean, I suppose the... The thought I have about it going forward is that um, it's important to remember that these interventions, of course, they have to work within the framework of what the individual council needs or, or an individual, you know, councillor or officer is being supported. 
But this is not something it's not just like another piece of consultancy that, you know, that we we do for our own place. Um, it is part of a wider system. So it's not designed to be public assurance. It's not inspection. It's it's an aid to self-reflection. But as a sectoral program on behalf of local government, we've got to make sure that we do have collective confidence in that one, that it's that we're open to it. We're open to participating either by inviting challenge on ourselves or providing it to others that we that we will take responsibility for dealing with things if we find them or at least trying to. And that we'll challenge each other if that doesn't happen. And I think it's important that we remember all those bits, not because we want to become inspection or insurance. We can't compel people to do things, nor should we. That will always be a role for others, I think, formally in the system if it becomes necessary. But if we want our approach to be as effective as it can be, then I think as a sector we need to take our share responsibility and obligation seriously as well. Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. And I think just I'm thinking of a of a behavioural angle on this. I mean, I certainly recognise that probably over the past three or four months, I had stopped reaching out to people as much as I maybe had been at this at the beginning of lockdown. I did it a lot because that was the new world and it was all shiny. And then I think as fatigue has set in, I've stopped doing that and I've restarted it now. And just you know, speaking to people like yourself and others, just sharing your experience of what it's been like and what's going on in the world uh, is really important. Um, or you can just you just fall out of touch and you yeah. yeah and also you know this period unlocks some new and different ways of doing it which you know we you wouldn't necessarily have chosen but I mean just go you know you asked me earlier on about response chief executives you know across London have organized themselves both collectively but at sub-regional level um, and they've drawn an enormous amount of strength from some of those networks that they've had to build to deal with the response you know, and a real rapid, real time share and compare approaches to some of the things that, you know, they've had to turn around in literally 24, 48 hours. Uh, so that's, you know, that's new kit has been invented to do some of that. Yeah, maybe a bit, maybe a bit rough at the edges, but periods like this drive innovation as well, don't they? They certainly do. They certainly do. Uh, John, as a final question, and I, I ask this of everyone, um, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or a charity or social enterprise that delivers public services who wants to make an impact in the way that you are making an impact? What bit of advice would you give them? Uh, I know it's a bit hackneyed, but I do think that indifference to claiming the credit is important. I mean, that has to be with realism because it might not be sustainable always politically, publicly or financially to be absolutely indifferent to who gets credit. But I think it's a pretty important starting point in any relationship with partners, a sort of important default position that we will achieve more if we, you know, if we're more interested in that outcome collectively than we are about. I think I think that's such a good point and it's really difficult. And I just as you were saying it, I was nodding and also feeling a bit uncomfortable about it as well. So, yeah, yeah I mean, you know, right I, one has to be realistic. It won't, it won't <laughs> sustain, you know, uh, you know, uh, it won't sustain entirely. But I think yeah. it, it, it nonetheless is a good starting point. I think that um, from my experience, uh, and I, you know, I don't, uh, I should immediately say I, I enter into all this with humility, and I don't always follow my own advice, of course. 
Um, but you, uh, actually, John, I, you are extremely humble, I must say, in not just in this conversation, in every conversation. So you certainly take your own advice on that one. I think. Uh, but I think I think that, you know, listening, listening really hard, going back, listening again to all of the partners you work with, because I think continually trying to put yourself in the shoes of those that you're having to deal with whether that be service users, whether it be partners, whether it be political leaders, other sectors. I've never known a position, you know, not be made a bit better by really trying to think what's it like for them in this situation, in the discussion we're having. And I suppose the last thing, Andrew, is um, I think you have to look out for your people and try and have their backs as much as you can, because that's the conditions which help make it possible for them to be the stars that you want them to be. And as I say, I've been fortunate in my career to have a few who've done that. Um, But also you've got to make sure that you look after yourself enough to sort of retain the sort of the energy and the focus and the resilience that, that you need to make a difference and that you need to make a difference for them. To give some examples, I mean, how, how can we look after ourselves a bit better? Do you think? Yeah, and I, and I mean, you know, and I think a lot of people have had this challenge in particular over over the last period of time. But you know, you really, I think, have got to try and be tough about carving out some time, both to yeah. move away from it altogether, because that's that's pretty important, it seems to me, in terms of our overall health and well-being. Um, but also some time for that reflection as well, really. Um, yeah. You know, it's 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 easier said than done. And there will be people who hear this who will smile and think, um, you know, he should have done a bit more of that himself. Uh, which <laughs> is absolutely true. But but I, I do think, you know, we all owe it to ourselves and more critically also our teams, really, to uh, to to try and do that, because, you know, we're not going to be we're not going to help the objective or them. If, you know, if we don't carve out a bit of time to think about it ourselves. Yeah, I completely agree. John, many thanks for your time. Thank you, Andrew. I enjoyed it. So I found that discussion really interesting and I I learned a lot and I hope you did too. I think a few points I'd like to draw out um, would be John's points around levelling up and the fact that in London you've got this very interesting mix of dynamism and also deprivation and there are real pockets of deprivation within London but at the same time it doesn't feel like the levelling up agenda is targeting London. I talk a lot about what we call the bridge between central and local government and John had some fascinating insights there about how local government not only understands its own priorities, but also is the place where the grip and understanding on the levers of power to get central government priorities implemented, that's where they lie at a local level. And the really good civil servants and ministers, for that matter, really get that. And finally, I found John's personal reflections at the end of the interview really useful. Um, That point about being prepared not to take the credit for everything that you do is a very important mindset to getting real things done. John talked about really listening and how he's never been in a difficult situation where it wasn't improved by making an effort to understand the other person or the other party's position. I'm sure we can all think of examples over the last nine months to a year in particular where Uh, A little bit of that wouldn't have gone amiss. 
So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode and please remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, on LinkedIn or register on the website to never miss a future episode and indeed catch up on some of the previous ones. Thank you.